This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back. We're going to try something a little different this week. During a recent episode of the Sea Control podcast put out by the Center for International Maritime Security, that's SIMSEC, I was discussing the history of the USS Constitution along with angry PowerPoint staffer and the host of the show. At one point I mentioned that in pop culture the Constitution appears in an episode of the old G.I. Joe cartoon from the 1980s. As a result of that, the three of us had a post-show discussion. We decided to look at the episode and take parts of it, analyze it, talk about the history that is portrayed in it or inferred in it, as well as modern combat. So based on that, we did a joint podcast. So Sea Control and Preble Hall have the same content this week, just different introductions and uh, exits. The second part is where I interview the writer of that episode of G.I. Joe. His name is David Karen, and he very uh, was kind in, in offering his time and his insight, and there were some surprises in there as well. So we hope you enjoy this two-parter of what we hope will be uh, the first of many joint podcasts between Preble Hall and Simsex Sea Control. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard. Normally, I would say Sea Control, but today is the uh, first joint or combined episode of Sea Control and Preble Hall. So today, my guests are the Angry Staff Officer and Dr. Claude Barabee from the Naval Academy History Museum. Two of them joined me a few weeks ago to talk all things USS Constitution, and it was there that Claude revealed the existence of a 1986 episode of G.I. Joe that featured the Constitution rescuing the Atlantic fleet from a rogue battleship in the famed episode, Sink the Montana. So, gentlemen, thank you again for being here. Before we kick off, how's everybody doing? Doing great. Thank you very much. <laughs> We're obviously, uh, you know, being very courteous and don't want to talk over the other. Uh, the... Uh, Absolutely thrilled to be back here. Love being able to do uh, joint operations. I'm really hoping I'm getting credit for this as a joint billet, right? That's, that's, that's why we're here. Do you get, do you get a JSAM for this? Right, yeah. Got to write that up. I will uh, I will fill out the paperwork, but uh, I think I think I'm technically the senior in this one, so uh, I will submit it, and we'll, we'll see what happens. My boss will probably be surprised to learn uh, both that I've submitted JSAM and that I have a podcast. Uh, <laughs> So before we go into the episode in particular, like the episode comes out September 1986, and uh, I'm going to start with my take that this represents sort of the high watermark of the U.S. Navy in popular culture here. 1983 of Tom Clancy's novel, Red Storm Rising, and I know it postulates a third world war here, but I remember reading it as a young anti-submarine warfare officer and kind of gasping. as like, this is the most realistic uh, description of anti-submarine warfare that I've encountered. Uh, 1984, you have The Hunt for Red October, obviously another great Navy movie, and then 1986, Top Gun. So, Claude, as the uh, naval historian in the group here, what do you think of that take? That's pretty spot on. The 80s, you had this, you know, the concept of the 600-ship Navy. We were getting there toward 86, 87, and then it started going back down again. Of course, you, you missed 1989 Cher's video, If I Could Turn Back Time, oh. which was shot <laughs> on an Iowa-class battleship. And there's actually a very good story behind there that We'll tell it another time from the PAO who was responsible for that. But uh, no, I, th I think that's very realistic. The 80s is not just a high watermark for the Navy. 
because of its size, but because of the number of operations you're conducting overseas, you've got a major competitor. And so it, it was only natural that you would start to see this in in popular culture uh, reflected, whether it's in the movies or on television. To some degree, you'd see it later on in you know shows like, like JAG, or, but those are kind of far afield. You'll see once in a while these shows popping up, The Last Ship. But I, I think that's why eventually during the G.I. Joe cartoon run, you know, in the in the title song, it says uh, that they're fighting for freedom over land and air, but they never mentioned sea. So it was kind of nice to see that in Sink the Montana and a couple of other episodes that they decided to address it. So people, I think generally the, the population in the United States would have been more familiar with the Navy then in a way that I don't think they are today. Yeah, and this is also sort of the peak Reagan era military expansion where I think this is on a lot of folks' minds. And uh, Claude, you managed to get an interview with the episode's writer, David Karen, where he talked about sort of his target audience there. What age were you in 1986, Claude? I, I realize I'm asking you to out yourself, but I was six at that point. Yeah, so this wasn't, <laughs> this wasn't as much on my radar uh, at the time, but uh, I, I imagine this landed for you slightly more than me. Yeah, no, I was in college. Yes, it's true. I was in college, and I remember seeing this episode because what would happen is we'd get back from classes and uh, study period, and then before we went off to, to get some dinner, we'd just kind of veg out in the common room for like a half an hour, and usually it was when G.I. Joe was there, and so we'd watch G.I. Joe or something else. But when I spoke to David Karen, and, and I, I got to tell you, one thing I have always heard at writers' conferences, uh, because as you know, I've not only written nonfiction, I've written a couple of novels too. I think that writers are the, the nicest, most down-to-earth people that you can meet. Maybe that's because they're not always recognized on the street because, you know, actors and actresses, everybody knows what they look like. But a writer really can sit on the train and observe everything for an hour and not be noticed for who they are regardless of how famous they may be in their books. And to reach out to, I figured, okay, look, this is 30 years ago. Maybe the, the, the writers must have been in their 20s or 30s, so they might still be available. And sure enough, I was able to track David down. Could not have been nicer in uh, providing a pre-interview for about an hour, and then we had a one-hour interview. And that's the second part of our episode. Oh, sorry, I, I, I meant to add. Yeah, he, I asked him, you know, this is kind of a kid's show. Why did you include these historical ships or these concepts. And he says, well, it wasn't really just a kid's show. Yeah, they were Hasbro was trying to sell toys. However, it went well beyond teens in some cases. And what we try to do, at least in the episodes that I wrote, as David was telling me, is that uh, we wanted to bring in some historical things that maybe there, it would reach some people to make them want to research it more. And that's exactly what happened. Here we are, 30 what, 34 years later, uh, talking about this episode within the context, not as a cartoon, but what are the concepts that they brought out during this episode that we are familiar with either as historians or as uh, practitioners in the Navy or the Army. Sepper, what was uh, G.I. Joe's impact on you? Is this uh, part of your childhood it as well? It gives me a little bit of pause because uh, we're talking about something that was released the very year that I was born. So, uh, Claude, in case you... I hate you. I hate you. I know. But hey, I just wanted to say, you you look so much younger. 
I just, that's, you know, <laughs> if it's any consolation. No, so G.I. Joe, for me, actually, it's similar with Claude. I, I first experienced it in college because uh, one of my roommates was just like this, I don't know, a, a Joe fanatic, I guess. And so we would just watch old episodes and uh, more often than not, the uh, the G.I. Joe commercials <laughs> which were uh, just showing up on YouTube at the time. And there was a sort of boom of G.I. Joe, all the old G.I. Joe episodes on YouTube, um, which was also uh, heating up at the at the time. So it was this like uh, cross-generational thing that was going on. But then I hadn't actually seen the Constitution episode until just uh, until uh, Claude mentioned it on the last episode. And uh, I was just sort of blown away with... Um, Feeling like I, I, like I was missing out. Like there's so many more GI Joe episodes that I'm gonna have to go back and and watch because it was sort of. I mean, I'll be honest. It's like in a certain sense, it's a little bit corny, but it's also really well. And we'll talk about like some of the stuff with the Montana. It like it really hits home in a in a way that I you know for a landlubber like me is is probably sort of not as much as as it does with uh, with gentlemen like uh, with you gentlemen. Uh, in the in the Navy. So uh, they definitely tapped into something, I would say. Before we dive in here, too, I'll just make one comment on tone for the listeners. We are discussing a cartoon. We're going to use that cartoon to pull out different historical themes and talk about some of the history, but it is not our intent here to make light of a cartoon from the 1980s. That was an era. A lot of things in there had their place. The writer could not have been more gracious in offering us his time. So we don't want to appear that we're that we're making light of his uh, his work here. No, and I'll, I'll tell you, he he had a, an, a he's had an incredible career. He wrote for Star Trek: Next Generation, Stargate SG One, Buck Rogers, so he was familiar with you know ships, personnel, etc. This episode was presented in three acts, and as a format for our conversation, we'll be breaking down each act, providing a description of the act, punctuated by interjections here from the other two audience member Claude. I believe you have Act One. Is that correct? Okay, and I'll I'll start off with just what a summary of the show. And here's here's the storyline. The battleship Montana is being decommissioned in the Philadelphia Navy shipyard. Its CO has served on it all of its all of his life and joins Cobra to save the ship. They steal the ship and eventually we'll talk about how they try to fight the ship, but that's that's the essence of the story that they steal the last battleship. So they really did put a uh, David Karen really did put some thought into this, uh, especially with history, because he says in the interview the thing that influenced him with Sink the Montana was the movie Sink the Bismarck. So he said, "Why don't I try to tie this into the episode?" So he brings in the Montana. Now you may not be familiar with the battleship Montana, but again, doing research, there was a proposal for a battleship Montana. In the show, they say uh, it's fought three wars and has served for 45 years, which at that time would bring you back to about 1942, which is just about the time that the Montana class was canceled. Now, some, for some historical reference, uh, an Iowa-class battleship, they had four of the six that were built. Uh, they had about 48,000 tons, a top speed of 35 knots, and they had three 16-inch gun turrets. And the Montana class was designed to be the follow-on class to the Iowa and it was supposed to be 63,000 tons, a little slower at 28 knots, but it would have four turrets. And it was authorized in the 1940 budget, and BB-67 uh, was going to be the first one. So he does get some things really – I mean, 
the reason he gets some things right is because he, he told me. He said, I went to the library. We had a library on the lot so we could do research. So the Montana is, is said to be the largest battleship in the world in G.I. Joe uh, and the last of its kind. It was not in reality the last in, during the time of this show because the Missouri was decommissioned in 1992. And you hear the, one of the admirals, and I assume he's the admiral of the Atlantic Fleet, say, well, we'll never see the likes of her again. But, he, but they're very right. That's very prescient. They talk about it being old, outmoded, and so is her captain, this, ca this Admiral Latimer. For comic relief, you have the Navy guy, of course, Shipwreck, yeah. uh, who appears in most of the episodes. And he says, ah, they're nuts to scrap her. She's got the lines of a lady and the punch of a, of a dock fight. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of funny when you, when you do some research into some of these voice characters that – when you listen to the voice, it's a combination of two things. I think one of them was Jack Nicholson that, that influenced the character and some and another person. But but he's the one that's really lamenting the last of its kind and he's got this old chief chief way about him. So the ship pulls into the dock in the to the decommissioning ceremony at about ten knots, which I gotta tell you, coming in hard and heavy <laughs> at ten uh, knots is a lot. Yeah. Uh yeah, I I brought in a YP with, with some of my midshipmen uh, many, many years ago, and uh, you know, three to six knots we managed to put in a minor dent in the YP, which we won't <laughs> talk about that much. Anyway, so they're they're coming in hot. Cobra shoots, uh, start shooting up the pier because there's a decommissioning ceremony. They board the ship. Uh, the ship only has Destro, uh, who's the at that time Cobra commander, and a bunch of a, a Cobra androids. Got General Hawk on the the Cobra the. Uh, G.I. Joe side, manning a twin 50, um, 50 turret. Destro is on the bridge with Admiral Latimer. And one of the nice things about this episode is that there, that David points out is that there are these black, black and white cartoon flashbacks of Latimer's life. So you see why he's so drawn to the ship. He is an enlisted guy, as a junior officer, as a CEO. And Latimer says, quote, anything is better than retirement, unquote. So I'm going to assume that Admiral Latimer didn't get one of those government uh, board of, board of uh, directors <laughs> defense contractor positions that uh, tend to proliferate when there's retirement. So he says, I've only got one friend, the Montana. Now, that's the ultimate SWO, you know, ship, shipmate self. He is all about ship. The Montana gets underway. And when you see it get underway in the Philly Navy Yard, what's interesting is that she's got four turrets, two forward, two aft. So the illustrator must have also done the research because the proposed Montana class had four turrets, two forward, two aft. And after this, the Latimer is going through the Navy Yard saying, I'll show the Navy what they can do with their mothballed fleet. And he starts firing on all the ships. And now, it's not mothballed at the time, and it still isn't, but you see him firing and sinking CVN-68, which is the carrier aircraft carrier Nimitz. And toward the end, uh, they say, okay, now it's on to Norfolk and we're going to attack the 7th Fleet headquarters. Well, now it's the 2nd Fleet in actuality. So I don't know how, what, what do you do when you're going to be the, basically head, uh, leading the, the or commanding the Atlantic with this great ship that can't be defeated. And the reason it can't be defeated by modern technology is because they've Cobra's given him this EMP device that they've got on the ship, which gives them a, a two-mile bubble to protect themselves from any kind of modern mechanics. So how do you defeat that? So let's talk about the, that Act 1, and then uh, I'll hand it over for the Act 2 summary. Can we just say, like, if you say... I don't know. Maybe is it, maybe this is a Navy thing, but as an Army guy, if I hear somebody say, oh, my only friend is the 1st Division or something like that, I'm like, 
Man, you've. I feel like that's something that actually Pershing would say in World War One. My only friend is the First Division because they're the but only ones can't I care s- about. But, but like, you can't say that. You can't say that because the First Division is comprised of people. That's like uh, saying, that's true. Uh, you know, I, I I love First Division on the ship or something. I, I love all but, the bosun's mates or whatever. But, but it's a it's a platform. Now, if you could say it, if it's Patton saying, "My only friend is a tank," I think that's right. The, the right analogy. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I don't think it translates to army too well because we, it's usually like, well, we've just got a lot of tanks and we can get more if one of those is blown up. And so I'm just saying he seems uh, predisposed to be somebody who might be, uh, you know, I'm looking at insider threat here, and he does (laughs) seem to be somebody who's predisposed (laughs) to, uh, I don't know, maybe his cyber awareness training would have, or, you know, what, what would the equivalent be in the 80s? The, uh, does he do too much coke? Um, no, I, I, loved the, uh, I loved the idea that that is how they appeal to him and sort of subvert him and undermine him. Um, because, I mean, let's be honest, I'm in the army and I wish we had battleships. Like, they're really cool. Just from a sympathetic outsider's perspective, they're very, very cool. And I can imagine having served on one, say, for one's entire career. I mean, the, the age of not having capital ships like that is, uh, you know, it's not unlike peace in Europe. It's a relatively new phenomenon. Yeah, and there were always, you know, you always see some comments online. I think David Larder uh, often laments we should have a BBGN, a, a guided missile nuclear right. battleship. Well, actually, the, the Montana was uh, designed to be uh, BB, BBGs at least, to have some, some guided missiles aboard uh, later on, and I think one of the other later ships. But I'm sorry, not, not the Montana. The, the two Iowa class that were not built, the Illinois and the Kentucky, were going to be guided missile battleships. And what's interesting with with the Kentucky, at least, they took her boilers off and gave them to the two Sacramento class fast combat support ships. And I remember speaking many, many years ago to a former CEO of the Sacramento, and he said, "Yeah, it's one of the reasons why we could we really could keep up with with the fleet is because we had those battleship boilers aboard." Claude, you hit it on the head with the cultural piece as far as what drives Latimer's betrayal here is that the uh, ship shipmate itself. And Sapper, to get to your point about the army, it's like I don't think you have anything. Culturally, I don't think you have any cultural sayings that people associate themselves that way as far as a catchphrase that sort of encapsulates the mindset of the community that way. Mm. There's definitely definitely like organizational loyalty, but loyalty to one specific platform. I mean, like my dad was in the Coast Guard, and when I found out that his his old cutter was like formed the basis of a of a reef now, uh, he he was kind of broken up about that um and he'd only served there for like two or three years so yeah it's definitely uh definitely something that it kind of forced me to change my perspective a little bit jared that's a really good observation because when you look at this episode what is latimer really getting at he's he's getting at what a lot of what you see on social media and op-eds about the number of ships he's lamenting this is a grand old ship this is a fighting ship he never once talks about the sailors and the officers aboard. He doesn't talk about having served with them and who he served with or who he commanded. It's about the ship. So in his mentality, the way you maintain a fighting force is with a ship, and he neglects that other component. Now, Cobra tries to help him out with this because they end up populating it with androids. And maybe that's what, <laughs> but there we go. There, there we go to our, our era of reduced manning aboard <laughs> increasing automation so claude the other thing that you brought up was uh david's background with sync the bismarck 
And there are more parallels here than I think is like one, the idea that Latimer is going to command the whole of the Atlantic with this individual ship, <laughs> very reminiscent of 1941 thought on the German side. Two, what eventually happens to the Bismarck is it gets taken out by a biplane torpedo plane, the swordfish. It's like mm-hmm. it disables it, which allows the British fleet to catch it and kill it, which uh, there's actually some parallels in the way this episode is going to play out. Yeah, I, I found it really fascinating that immediately as soon as they get underway, Latimer asks, hey, co- where, where's my air cover? Like he, he admits, I can't maintain this platform without uh, without air cover. Like so he's, he's not denying that, um, you know, that the age of 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 warfare uh, has evolved to the point where, yes, he does need this air cover from Cobra. Um, and so really he's implying the need for either a, you know, a, a Cobra air wing or a, or a naval air wing or some type of joint action. But they would have had that aboard Montana. Maybe they already took it off because when you look at the Iowa-class battleships, they had, I think it was two to f- the two Kingfishers aboard on this because they had that stern, the stern mm-hmm. catapults. So you did have some, and then uh, in I don't think it was in time for this episode, but the Iowa ships had the early uh, oh shoot uh, the Arc was it the RQ two Pioneer, which was the unmanned aerial vehicle. So there, it was the beginning in the, in around the time that that GI Joe episode came out that you started having a very different kind of air component to uh, to the your ship one other correction there claude i think you mentioned that uh, shipwreck was a chief i i do believe he was a first class petty officer a gunner's mate oh well, maybe maybe he was a chief later on okay. i saw him in the uh in the blues there like the uh the dungarees the old-fashioned i don't want to get the online chief's mess up in arms <laughs> in my mention it's like don't don't ever upset the chief's mess but uh i think that brings us though to act two which is you sapper yeah, so Act Two, but really, it begins with that, uh, you know, um, Latimer asking for air cover and Cobra chuckling evilly, allowing the uh, the Joes to close in, and, uh, and then initiating his EMP. And I, you know, I kind of wonder, is this, you know, is this our first our first show of the EMP in a cartoon? Uh, this time in '86, uh, it's kind of a early early thought at the time, but definitely something that people were probably thinking about as more and more systems. Um, became electronic, and uh, of course that disables everything. The the aircraft fall into the sea. All the uh, all the submarines peter out, and the surface ships uh, go dead in the water as well. And so uh, then begins the the classic brainstorming session of what do we do about this? And uh, they decide, oh well, we will we will use uh, we will go to the one ship that uh, cannot be MP that is still in the U.S. Navy service, and that is USS Constitution. And in, in an act that I love that is a throwback to a grander age of, you know, asking for volunteers for essentially for a cutting-out expedition. Let's be perfectly honest here. This is asking for volunteers for a cutting-out expedition. All the Joes, of course, step forward. Uh, they do um, what I would call a, a joint venture because uh, they use what I would say are prototype, or not prototype Chinooks, because the Chinook was definitely already a uh, a platform uh but a a new type of ch-47 that can uh that can do some heavy lifting so uh you know with some help of you gentlemen and then reviewing my air assault uh (laughs) handbook uh 
you know, the uh, the Chinook has a, a lift capacity of about 26,000 pounds. And, uh, you know, so you bring in four of those. Um, well, you know, you're going to need some more Chinook. So uh, it, what it looks like is they're using much more advanced rotary wing aircraft with a much heavier lift capacity to lift this 2.4 million pound vessel. And uh, they do it. Uh, they they cut her out of the uh, the Boston Navy Yard, complete with the shore patrol, never knowing what's going on, which I thought was very accurate. What are you guys doing? Uh, as the uh, as it lifts out, and uh, and then the uh, they they proceed to sea to uh, towards the the Montana, uh, where the Montana is beginning its uh, beginning to uh, its opening engagement with the Atlantic fleet, and sort of Latimer's tortured soul. You know, realizing of firing now. You know, prior to this, he's fired on inanimate objects, and now, uh, you know, we talked about the the people on the vessels, and he's beginning to see that his little uh, the the bargain is is calling for more and more and more. He has to give up more and more of who he is uh, to Cobra. Um, and then one thing I noticed is that they're they're talking about loading AP shells, armor-piercing shells, when it seems like everything else at this point is laser um, or some sort of future technology. So I, I enjoyed that piece as well. So oh, I just wanted I think, to open. Yeah, sorry. I, just on that point, uh, Sapper, I, I got to point yeah. out, I think it may have been during the pre-interview that David mentioned that uh, his intent was for depleted uranium shells because he was reading about w- during his his <laughs> yeah. research, and yeah. so he says, "Well, you know, does it still have some radiation? Well, is that why it would, you know, kind of spark off when you're firing these weapons?" So that was his thinking behind that. Yeah, the uh, the uh, the uh, I enjoyed all the all that aspect. So uh, we'll go ahead and say, it. can could one cut out the USS Constitution by mm-hmm. air? I mean, I think well, that's a great question. It, it, and you know what? It was uh, it was about the only way you could do it because if if the ship is if the Montana's going from Philly to Norfolk, you're not going to be able to get the Constitution there in time if you sail it out because Constitution on a great day on Beams <laughs> Reach could be could do about 13 knots. You're never going to catch it. So the by air is the only way. But you're right. Uh, now the problem is you've got those Chinooks, and not all those Chinooks are going to be equal. Because when you think about it, uh, and Jerry, you've, I'm sure you've watched uh, Vert Reps at sea. Oh, yeah. And what will happen, I remember one time watching, uh, I was in the LSO shack, and the helicopter, our helicopter was coming over from the other ship. And you, what happens is if the, you've got a, this dangling pallet that's really heavy, so you've got to be very careful when you're flying. And then if there's wind or if there's any other conditions that causes this thing to start swinging – then you start to hear the pilot might say, you know, the load is unsteady, very unsteady. We are cutting the load because if they don't pull that that manual release that opens the cargo hook, that swinging pallet is going to cause the crash of your helicopter. Let's take it to 2020, however. There was a video that came out a few weeks ago of 2,000 drones which lifted and carried off a 40-ton truck. So – in 34 years, it's not necessarily these heavy lift craft. Now, I'm not saying that drones could could pull off taking the Constitution right now, but it's very interesting to see how drone development will occur, and they, in operating this swarm mentality, can really adjust for that uh, that balancing act that you would need for whether it's a 40-ton truck or for, say, the Constitution. Uh, Sapper, you asked, you know, how, how's the shore patrol doing? I have to say, from a historical standpoint, it's not the first time we've we've seen uh, problematic shore patrol. In the late 1830s, the commander of the Boston Navy Yard had put a figurehead of President Andrew Jackson on the Constitution, 
and local folks were not amused by that. Not so during all. one th- one thunderous lightning storm night, uh, a couple of guys, a couple of Bostonians, you know, they're probably both named Sully. Uh, one of them is is a merchant captain, and they take a rowboat to the figurehead and they chop it off. And no, there's, there's another yeah, there's another story behind that too. But anyway, so shore patrol was not doing their duty on that thunderous night in the 1830s, and they weren't when. Uh, G.I. Joe came in to steal the, the Constitution. Well, to be honest, nobody expects, you know, an air assault uh, operation to be coming <laughs> in to, to, to seize the Constitution, which, again, I think it, that it is a classic cutting out expedition um, as, uh, you know, as B.J. Armstrong talks about in Small Boats and Daring Men. <laughs> um, it, there were These were often joint operations ad hoc, uh, you know, cobbling together either uh, militia or, or army units with uh, with naval forces, yeah. and so I think it's really in the grand t- tradition of the of the U.S. Navy, um, and we talk about you know a very daring expedition is uh, is getting the Constitution out of Boston, uh, you know, overlooking just. Uh, I think that probably if they were doing their risk assessment and they were thinking about trying to take this over land, they'd have to look at uh, you know Boston drivers, which <laughs> yeah, exactly, or or which, Logan Airport, which is right, Lo- next, yeah. right next to where the Constitution is. But you know, it, when we were all emailing each other before and one of the things that you brought out sapper sapper was well where do you exactly hook on to a, a 1790s frigate well i think the answer isn't to to do that but to have some sort of sling or some grapple and when you think about the grapple the only thing that i could think of that was comparable was the glomar explorer in 1974 with project azorian that's where the K-129, which was a Gulf II Soviet submarine, had sunk, and it was in like three miles of water. And what they did is they built the Glomar Explorer. It was a Howard Hughes platform, and it had this giant grapple, and its intent was to go down three miles, hook onto it, uh, take this 2,700-ton submarine, raise it, put it in its its well, and secret secret off with it. Uh, Unfortunately, one of the grapples gave way, I think, a third of the way up or something. So they lost two-thirds of the submarine. They were able to bring up one-third. And that's about the only way I think you could really hook on to take the, the, something like the Constitution or even a smaller ship up. I mean, if you were to fly PCs somewhere from like Bahrain to UAE, if you really needed to get them fast, you know, maybe that's what you'd do. Well, you know, we've the the U.S. Army loves to experiment with different types of rotary wing aviation. I mean, back in Vietnam, they talked about they they're this again. It's this obsession with uh, honestly with the battleship of hey, we took this massive thing, we put massive guns on it, isn't it cool? And we're like, all right, we're going to try that. And uh, you know, of course, we have the the C one thirty gunship. Well, I, I I can't say we. That's the Air Force, but they came out of us, so it happens. Um, but the army the army looked for a while about putting one hundred five millimeter howitzers on board. Um, on board Chinooks, which is absurd, of course, but you know we we thought about it, we tried it. So um, these these would be uh, the types of things that uh, one would think about if in the future you're looking at massive lift. I think Claude, you had found a, uh, I think you had found a Russian helicopter with about what fifty three thousand pound. No, I think it was, like, I think it was, it? I, th- I think they had done a one hundred and twenty seven thousand ton lift. That was the Halo. You would need a couple of those to uh, to get off something this size, but um, you know, I think it's I think as uh, as cutting out expeditions go, it it goes very well, and uh, I think that probably puts us towards uh, towards the the ultimate act. Yes, Act Three. I'll get into it in a second, though. I do have a non sequitur question, Sapper. You mentioned 
the Air Force coming out of the Army. Does that mean the Space Force is technically the grandchild of the Army? Oh, man. I just thought of that. Uh, yeah. Well, I, the Navy's <laughs> the god... All right, so... <laughs> You're you're opening a whole can of worms here because let's all be honest. The space force is why is it not navy? Like literally every depiction of military forces in space is naval centric, and I take it from your silence that you agree, and not the fact that you've had to sign non-disclosure agreements with the U.S. Air Force uh, to not tread on their intel uh, their intellectual property. Apparently, I'll say there is a yeah there is a rumor that the first space force ship is going to be called the Bainbridge. But, well, that's another story. Yeah. Yeah, when it crashes on Jupiter and we have to go get it, <laughs> or stolen by aliens. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say no. It's gonna, it's not gonna. It's not. It's just not even gonna get off the ground. It's gonna go surrender to France. It's early. It's early days, is what I would say. So no, I have not given up on the idea yet of space force assuming a more naval character. I mean, they're gonna be called spaceships, right? Not space planes. Right. Act three finds us aboard the Montana. We're headed south. My first question here was, where are we? I'm not super familiar with East Coast geography, but I started pulling up Google Earth and was able to narrow it down to what I think is a rough location. So once Montana has cleared the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, she has to transit the Delaware River out into Delaware Bay and then proceed down the eastern seaboard towards Norfolk to meet the 7th Fleet. So all told, that's about 190 statute miles or 165 nautical miles. Our top speed was supposed to be 28 knots, but given her age and likely condition, I would dock a few uh, a few knots there. So 26 would have taken her six hours and 20 minutes to get to a position off Virginia's eastern, eastern shore. So I believe she's somewhere in the vicinity of Hog Island when we come back into the story there. Is Latimer actually steaming at 26 knots? I spent a lot of time teaching over in Germany about the Second World War in the Pacific here. And one of the things that you come to learn very quickly is these large battleships burn fuel at precipitous rates. So the Japanese were extremely hesitant to get the massive battleships like the Yamato underway. Montana's coming back from sea, going into decommissioning, probably didn't refuel. I would guess they're below 50% when they get back to the pier. There's no way they're steaming at 26 knots, which actually is going to allow Constitution to do what uh, you're going to see her do in this episode. But uh, I would throw out, if you want to read about U.S. Navy logistics in the Second World War, I'd recommend Bullets, Beans, and Black Oil. That is kind of the definitive account of Service Squadron 10, the replenishment vessels that supported the fleets in the Pacific there. So the Constitution gets dropped into the water off of uh, Hog Island here, and she's lying in wait behind the island to keep her mast from Montana's radar. The plan is to overtake uh, the Montana, once she's passed here, Claude, what did you say Constitution's top speed was? On a good day on a beam's reach, probably about 13 knots. Okay. Can you define for me beam's reach real quick? Is, like, sure, I'm sure a way. Navy surface warfare officer. <laughs> I am not a sailor as in one who understands sailing vessels. So. Sure. On a beam's reach. So imagine the wind is coming from uh, perpendicular to you, either from the port or starboard. So that is pretty much pretty close to the optimum uh, direction you want the wind coming from when you're sailing. So based on earlier fuel concerns here and the speed that we think Latimer might be going, this plan to overtake could actually work. And then we see the 7th Fleet, uh, which you had mentioned was probably the 2nd Fleet, steaming up out of Norfolk to meet them. Uh, Claude, based on your eye here, what does it look like is coming up there? Because I see what appears to be five battleships here, and I think you actually talked about this with David a little bit in the other episode as far as what they had access to drawing-wise. Yeah, and actually he he said that the there was something that was cut out 
and I'd love to see if it, was, it exists somewhere in some archives, but a much more detailed uh, view of the battle, but it just became so intensive that they weren't able to keep it in the 22-minute time frame. So I think when they're, when they're going down there, if Latimer is a decent uh, sailor, he's probably, you know, for the, for the Montana, he's probably ordered trail shaft and is trying to optimize fuel, fuel efficiency to get down there because he's not going to have enough. Uh, for for that trip and engage in the battle. What I think is a shortcoming for Latimer is he he doesn't put he has, this is bad watch standing <laughs> because with all with all the with all the androids I mean think about this so the Constitution's mast is 198 feet and from uh, on the Iowa class battleships using that as a baseline it was 209 feet from the heat, from the keel to uh, the mast top so let's assume that. They're relatively equal. Don't you have somebody up on the bridge who can see the mast over the tree line? Because down there you don't have mountains. You really don't have hills on the south southeast Virginia. You know, you're not going to have trees that are more than, I don't know, 50, 60 feet high maybe. So I think this is bad watch standing so that they're able – so that's why the Constitution is able to hide in wait behind the island and then sail in right behind – the Montana. So bad androids. <laughs> yeah, I would I would say though This is why you need people on the ship by the way, not androids. Absolutely. Exactly. But I would say probably not expecting the constitution at that point. Nobody <laughs> expects the US constitution. <laughs> but, but or the Spanish back, Inquisition. <laughs> but getting back to what Sapper said about air cover, Latimer knew he needed air cover. Had he had that air cover, whether it was a Kingfisher or another seaplane or or a small drone, he would have seen what was coming over the horizon and ha- would have had uh, at least a, a better ability to prepare against the Constitution and the G.I. Joes coming aboard. You should always have air cover because of G.I. Joe. I'm going to use that one in briefings from now on. Uh, we need synchronized <laughs> combined arms operations uh, to ensure that G.I. Joe is not waiting beyond the next hill crest. Look, even G.I. Joe recognized the importance of having an aircraft carrier. So. Which begs the question, like, where is the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier? Well, we understand the EMP would probably be effective against it. So Vice Admiral Overton has brought his battleship fleet here and is now setting up what will be the new last battleship uh, battleship battle, the previous one being the Battle of Surigao Strait in and around Leyte Gulf here when Admiral Jesse Oldendorf and his battleships crossed the Japanese T and destroyed much of the Japanese center force. Smart move by Overton. Why? Because these battleship guns probably outrange the stated two-mile radius of the EMP system. But our next viewpoint is from Shipwreck standing on Constitution's deck, and he's watching the two combatants approach one another here. We'll talk briefly about the concept of bearing drift for a second. So bearing drift is how sailors determine whether risk of collision exists. And, Claude, this goes back to your point about good watch standing here. We have Shipwreck, you know, GM... CBDR. GM1 GM1 Shipwreck uh, standing, watching these two forces approach here. And bearing goes back to a compass, so there's 360 degrees on the compass. There are individual degrees between all of these. If I see a ship due north of me, that ship bears 000. If I look at it a few minutes later, and it's moved slightly to the right and now bears 003, it's said to have right bearing drift. Shipwreck is watching these two come closer together here, and what they're going to have to do is they eventually want to achieve a zero bearing drift with the Montana, which means that a risk of collision exists. So, hmm. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I lost my train of thought there. Well, they were about to lose the Constitution if there's a collision. So I, I'm afraid that Old Ironsides isn't going to withstand uh, a full weight of a battleship. But, you know, you never know. That's, and the second part of that is once they 
uh, through the line over to the Montana, they were being dragged by the Montana. Right. And I think that probably might have pulled the most <laughs> of the bowsprit or a part of the bow itself off. I'm I'm pretty sure. But they got the the men aboard pretty quickly to to board the Montana. I do love I do love the uh, the Continental Navy throwback garb. That was actually awesome of uh, shipwreck being in the. Uh, Oh and, no, uh, no, 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 yeah. no. Yeah, that's Continental Navy. It was not No, I, I researched it. That is that is Continental Navy. <laughs> no, for right, our fine. listeners, we need to uh, clarify. Shipwreck went down to of course he's you know, he is a sailor. He went he seventeen seventy six Navy. No. He comes up with a pirate uniform and even his, his parrot Polly has a pirate uniform. How they found a pirate uniform for Polly the Parrot in the ship's museum, I don't know. So but you're going to say up, that you are going to go against what the U.S. Navy says in its own history of uniforms for the 1776, because in 1777 they go toward the white facings rather than the red facings. What source did you use? Navyhistory.mil <laughs> or something, I don't know. <laughs> some, some WordPress thing. I found it somewhere on the internet. It was one of those, okay. those engravings of... Uh, of uh, you know uniforms of the U.S. Navy history.navy.mil, which is probably as about as accurate as uh, army.history.mil. Uh, I didn't say that out loud. Um, we'll cut. So this. they tried. They, they tried. tried. They tried, but she does get alongside, gets a grappling hook over. Uh, you mentioned like it turns into a very taut towing line. Uh, not necessarily a recommended way that you want to tow a ship at sea. Shipwreck is the first one aboard and discovers pretty quickly that the modern Navy swords are more ceremonial than anything else. You're not going to run anyone through with that thing without overwhelming force. But just as he's about to be overwhelmed, he's bailed out by Hawk and his team in the greatest boarding in the history of visit board search and seizure. But the VBSS team is undermanned for taking down a battleship. This is pre-under siege. Then sort of a common thread here that you see between Cobra and Under Siege is that the only way to take down a battleship is with the man on the inside. So I believe that Latimer and Gary Busey are actually exist <laughs> within the same cinematic universe. Uh, and Destro is probably Tommy Lee Jones, but it's less clear if he can sing. But as Hawk's team is forced back, Hawk jumps on what appears to be a 40 millimeter AA gun, which I think is one of the cooler developments from World War II. Montana would have had 10 of these, and these were key U.S. anti-aircraft armament as you got towards the end of the Second World War as the Navy is dealing with the kamikaze threat. And Hawk swivels that 40 millimeter around to blast the pulse modulator. Which which is sort of fascinating because um, I talked to a... um, I had a chance to interview a guy who is on uh, a heavy cruiser. I want to say... USS Boston um, in the Pacific, and he talked about being on one of those. And I asked him, you know, how how did they deal with the the kamikazes? And he said, well, you know, they would the kamikazes would come all the way down to sea level and then try to pitch in, try to get below the uh, below the arc of the guns. And uh, he said that they would time their fire with the roll of the ship, which to me is <laughs> yeah uh, terrifying. <laughs> but he's just you know calm, calmly explaining to me how he did this. And I'm going, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing that I think gets underestimated is just the sheer cacophony of the noise. Of You have the main guns firing, so 16-inch rifles on some of these battleships, mm-hmm. plus 30, 40, 5-inch guns. I mean, your modern ship today only has a single 5-inch gun on a U.S. Navy destroyer. 
Yeah, if those if those sixteen inch guns are being fired, I don't think there's supposed to be anybody on deck because you know, Jared, you know that you kind of clear the bow when you've got the five inch gun firing. I can't imagine anybody. And I know uh, you know the old legend of Philo McGiffin, who was an 1882 Naval Academy grad, was uh, in the Battle of Yalu commanding a Chinese warship, and he uh, he's rolling under the guns. He had just come out from uh, firefighting. And uh, the guns went off, and he immediately went deaf in one side, and it burned part of his face. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, not a place you want to be during... At this point of the battle, Latimer kind of realizes he lost once he sees the pulse modulator destroys, destroyed, which begs the question, if is the pulse modulator the center of gravity, or is it a critical capability of the Montana? Probably a question oh, boy. for our students <laughs> of uh, SAMS and uh, SAW and all the other advanced planning <laughs> courses. But So Latimer starts trying to undo everything he's done. However, Montana appears to have some sort of 1980s equivalent of the Aegis Auto Special Doctrine, which is kind of we put Aegis in auto to destroy incoming threats. It's like the guns are going to continue to threaten the 7th Fleet, and the 7th Fleet does what what they do when threatened is like, nope, we're going to sink that ship because it won't stop firing at us. So they start pouring it on as the bridge burns. Hawk pulls uh, Latimer off the ship and they make their escape. And I will say here, uh, so this is the only part of the episode that actually seeing the seeing a ship sinking is a sad event. And mm. Shipwreck says it earlier in the episode here, sat in for a grand lady. Have either of you ever decommissioned a ship or taken part in a sink-ex? No, I've prepared uh, a couple ships for sink-exes, but I haven't seen a ship go down. No. Claude, can I ask, what was the preparation like for this sink-ex? It was part of my role, this is ages ago, uh, for Office of Naval Intelligence, we were we were doing uh, sanitation exercises, which basically says you're, you're going through the ship to make sure there's not any uh, flotsam and jetsam that can be that can uh, eventually rise that would be compromised. Okay. So I've done three of these sink X's throughout my Navy career. And when you say sink X is basically we're going to take a, a Hulk out or a ship that's been decommissioned that the Navy has determined we have no more use for it. And mm. we're going to put as much ordnance into it as we can before it goes down. Really one of the coolest things I've ever done right up until the end when your bridge just goes silent because it becomes a sad moment for everybody watching as you think about it. It's like, oh, this is what could actually happen if things go go poorly for us in combat. I mean, we sank USS uh, Harry W. Hill off the coast of Hawaii, and we're in a cruiser. Initially, as we steam up on it, we can only bring the Ford gun to bear. So the initial salvos landing a little short, then long, finally get on target. Ford gun would still occasionally come short, and then the aft gun on the cruiser swings in, and every round is impacting, and the whole bridge is going nuts. And then we finally get up alongside her, and we can see the damage done, and fires going everything, and she's starting to slip between the waves, and the whole bridge just goes silent. And that was the one part of this episode made me flash back immediately at that moment. It's like, wow. This is more emotion than I was expecting to feel while watching an episode of G.I. Joe. Yeah, it sort of goes back to that early point of, uh, you know, why Latimer makes his decision, uh, because there is there is something really personal about that that uh, dedication to, to that one ship. And so... You know, even as as a non Navy guy, it is it is. I think it's I think it's in sync the Bismarck as they're watching her go down. Um, there's everyone everyone is commenting on um, the sadness of that moment, uh, kind of bring it back to that to that movie, and uh, it is sort of a, a tragic moment, even if it is an adversary. The back to the the ideas of uh, so many people are tied up in the history of these vessels and so many stories. 
and yours could be next. And that's a th- I think that it's a, it's it's a strange thought of the mortality of your own ship. Bunker Hill is now I think the one of the oldest surface warfare ships in the fleet, and I imagine she'll be dis- decommissioned soon. I think I'll 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 probably sense that when I see her decommed. Absolutely. So, gentlemen, any final thoughts on this episode, or anything else you think we need to discuss here? Yeah, I uh, I just want to go back to the the essence of this this episode, Sink the Montana, and why David Karen did such a great job in the fundamental theme of how do you take a weapon like an EMP, how do you how do you defeat new technology? And sometimes the answer is less or no technology. And I think that we, we tend to overtech stuff. We've seen this in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we've seen these this low end fighting that has been such a challenge for so many years. And this could happen even at sea. I'm going to use the the example of the USS Cole. It wasn't a missile or, um, you know, a hypersonic missile or anything like that 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 attacked the Cole. It was simple explosives on a skiff and a couple of dudes. And I think we we tend to overthink the technology, whether it's there or elsewhere in the Pentagon. Yeah, I mean, it is a cartoon. I get that. But we have seen this also in reality of how low-tech or no tech can defeat or prolong a war. Absolutely. The army is going the same way where who would have thought that in the 21st century, yes, we're talking about a lot of high tech stuff, but the army is also saying, hey, get back to basics, know how to read a map, use a compass, use analog products for battle tracking, Um, do as much as you can that cannot be affected by disturbing the, uh, or by disturbances in the comm systems or loss of, uh, loss of ability to generate electricity. So it's forcing us to think outside the box. And while I don't think we'll go back to an age of muskets, uh, I think there's definitely a lot of looking towards the past to go, Hey, how did we used to do things? What are the basics of our profession? Uh, and I think that's sort of what this episode kind of harkens back to. I want to thank my guests. Angry Staff Officer can be found online at his blog, angrystaffofficer.com, and on Twitter at P-P-T-S-A-P-P-E-R. Dr. Claude Barabee can be found online at C-G-B-E-R-U-B-E. And I'll put another plug for the excellent podcast series he's involved with here, Preble Hall. So, again, this is a joint Sea uh, Control Preble Hall product here, but go listen to Preble Hall every week. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.